Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Pain Talk. So we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. David Jerlink regarding uh, tramadol. We're going to talk more about how tramadol is regulated in Canada uh, and what makes it unique around that control and regulation and probably what's contributed to some of the challenges that we're starting to see with this drug regarding some misperceptions and misunderstanding about uh, whether or not this is a safer drug, whether or not this drug requires the oversight that it needs. So we'll get right into that uh, conversation. So David, uh, maybe what you could do is talk to us about what are the unique differences between tramadol and other opiates in, in Canada? So tramadol in Canada is not a scheduled drug like most opioids are, like all other opioids are, which doesn't make any sense really yeah. uh, because, I mean, it's an opioid. It's converted yeah. to an opioid in most patients. Um, but my concern about that failure to schedule it is that it, it leaves doctors, setting aside the individual provinces and how they monitor its use or don't, um, you know, I've, I've certainly seen no small number of patients who have been put on tramadol by doctors who drank the Kool-Aid. It's not just a, got a dual mechanism of action, but it's not tracked. It's not scheduled in the same way as, say, oxycodone or hydromorphone. This gives doctors the impression that it is somehow a special drug and it's safer. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it, it's not it's not scheduled. It must be yeah. different in some way. There's this mm. perception out there that it's that it's special, not just because of its mechanism of action mechanisms, uh, but also because it's not being tracked. And so I've seen patients who I think of one guy um, who cold called me one one day in my office and he wanted to see me. I don't I don't I mostly see inpatients, but I, I his story was that he. Um, had a bad shoulder, and his orthopedic surgeon wanted to prescribe him some Percocet, and he said, I'd rather avoid opioids. And the guy said, okay, here's some Tramadol. <sighs> and so the Tramadol helped him. Okay, it made him it made him more functional. But every about a year and a half later, when he uh, realized he didn't want to keep taking Tramadol, he tried to taper off of it, and he was crippled by insomnia. I yeah. mean, just really, truly crippled, yeah. and had to keep taking Tramadol to avoid the insomnia. He, he was smart enough to realize that he um, that his need for the drug had arisen because he was taking it, and I, I helped him come off of it. But uh, but to the point about scheduling, uh, Health Canada, uh, in failing to schedule tramadol as it did codeine, for example, it it's 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 helped promote this misconception that it's somehow safer. Yeah. In 2007, Health Canada said, uh, "We're gonna we've proposed to put tramadol uh, in the schedule of controlled drugs and substances, where of course it should be." Um, and they were lobbied, Health Canada was lobbied by two drug companies and a palliative care organization that was bankrolled in part by one of the drug companies and just backed off. Mm. And so they are now, because of some pressure, um, uh, including pressure from, uh, I've written some op-eds and been very critical of Health Canada's failure to, um, to, to schedule it. They are proposing to schedule it uh, sometime in the next year or two. I don't exactly know when. Yeah, um, I think they're so looking I, I think, at... I think it's it's, it's, it's yeah. the differential treatment of tramadol that, that I think um, yeah. is a problem. And, it, and it, it sort of brings to the next the question that I have is that, you know, when we talk about harm reduction or re- reducing harm, I mean, typically tramadol, when we think about when we introduce it, it's that mild to moderate. We don't really think of it coming in, you know, around severe pain. But so when we think of a harm reduction strategy, is it less harmful than other opiates that we're using? Or is that a misperception as well? Misperception. I mean, I think 
the, the idea that we can use weaker opioids or less potent opioids for harm reduction is faulty because yeah. um, both the two main drugs in that category in Canada anyway are codeine and tramadol. Yeah. Codeine is not an analgesic. It doesn't do anything until it's converted by mm. your liver to morphine. That's how it works. Yeah. And and the same pathway that turns codeine into into morphine uh, is this is the one that turns tramadol into its opioid metabolite. And it varies from person to person. So so the bottom line from from a, for clinicians is when you start somebody on on codeine or tramadol, you're giving them. You don't know what you're giving them. Exactly, I, yeah. I can say I'm giving you 60 milligrams of codeine. Or I'm giving yeah. you 50 of tramadol. I have no idea yeah. how much opioid I'm giving you. And so in our individual patient level experiment, where the goal is to afford more benefits than harms, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And so it, to me, it makes much more sense. If you want to give somebody an opioid, give them an opioid, give them morphine, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. give them a bit of hydromorph if you want. Don't give them a drug like codeine or tramadol that's converted to an opioid in an unpredictable and highly unpredictable and variable mm. fashion. So, so I, I think from a harm reduction perspective with opioids, um, I think uh, rather than focusing on weak versus strong, I would say we should we should initiate them less often than we used to. Um, we should keep the doses low, ideally. Uh, you know, if, recognizing that escalating the dose is a sign that lower doses have failed, and that's where we get into trouble. You know, don't give 30 pills when 12 will do, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 certainly don't uh, with patients who are already on opioids for years and are on high doses. Don't cut them back too quickly because that's a great way to hurt people. Are there are there? We often think about uh, with codeine, sort of rapid metabolizers, slow, mm -hmm. medium. Is that is that a, is that a myth as well, or is it? I'm oh, just thinking. Oh, that's a real thing. So, oh, okay. So the, yeah. So whether it's codeine being converted to morphine or tramadol being converted to its opioid metabolite, okay. the enzyme that does that, not to get too pointy at it, but the enzyme that does that is called cytochrome P452D6, CYP2D6 for short. And like I say, 7% of uh, North Americans don't have any of that. Um, some of us have multiple copies of the gene that does that. And so uh, so you, you when you give somebody a known dose of codeine, what you're really giving them is an unknown dose of morphine, yeah. full stop. Yeah. And and importantly, let's say you've got somebody who's on tramadol or on codeine chronically. Let's say someone's on codeine content 150 twice a day, or they're on tramadol 100 milligrams or 150 a day, and they're doing okay uh, on those doses. Um, if you then came in and gave them a drug that happened to turn off that enzyme, mm. like, like bupropion, uh, Zyban or Wellbutrin, or paroxetine, um, you would you could easily precipitate opioid withdrawal by 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 making that making that making it so they were unable to turn the codeine into morphine or turn the tramadol into the opioid and so um, it's 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 it, it very quickly gets complicated but yeah no, that's a that phenomenon that that variable conversion of codeine the inactive drug to its metabolite morphine is is a real thing. So this this sort of brings me then to how you know how healthcare providers can monitor their patients' use of uh, tramadol. You know, so we talk about. I mean, the only tool we have, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are about urine drug testing. Uh, you know, mass spectrometry versus point of care testing. I know it's very compli complicated, and there isn't uniformity. You know, within all of our institutions, it's crazy how all of us are using different tools, kind of thing. But how 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 it's how is it best to monitor the patient's use that there isn't some diversion that's happening, uh, even though you know obviously patients, uh, there are the relationships that we have with our patients. But um, so what would we see in a urine drug test or mass spectrometry? I'm just curious. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, I don't use a lot of urine drug testing. Um, okay. I mean, I think the best way to monitor their to monitor things is to look at their refill patterns, which is which is you know easy to do. Um, in some jurisdictions, it's harder to do in others, um, uh, especially ones where it's not tracked. Um, but the, the urine drug testing, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just it's qualitative, right? It's just the drug yeah. is present or absent. Um, most uh, doctors are going to be using the sort of these point of care dipsticks you know, which is like a pregnancy test yeah. for different drugs. And so you dip the urine and you see it goes positive for cannabis or THC, or it goes positive for benzos, or it goes positive for opiates. Tramadol is not going to register on those yeah. tests because yeah. it's, it's, not, an, it's yeah. not structurally an opiate. It doesn't look anything yeah. like heroin or oxycodone or, or morphine. Um, it would be detected on the more sophisticated testing, either mass spec or, or, chrom uh, or um, uh, chromatography that you would do in a larger center. But there again, it's just the presence of the absence of the drug. So if the patient, if you if you got a patient who's, you know, if you're worried about someone taking more than they're supposed to, um, for example, I mean, you're not going to get information about that from urine drug testing. Your mm -hmm. urine drug testing might be helpful if, you know, I've, I've got a, a scenario in mind where the patient is getting an opioid and it's not present in their uh, urine. Uh, and it becomes apparent that they're just selling it to sort of help pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that's one of the ways in which it would be informative. But I think it's, it's easy to put too much stock in urine testing. So the other area that I've seen it as well, so we talk about uh, diversion, is around elder abuse, mm -hmm. uh, where you're not, seeing the you're not seeing the substance in the urine. And it's not that the individual's diverting, it's that there are other things that are going on in their life. Uh, the other thing that I think when I think of urine drug testing, I mean, I, obviously, I never do it to catch people. It's really about creating dialogue and mm. sort of trying to manage that risk. But is if I see other substances come into the urine. So if if I'm seeing oxycodone, um, if I'm seeing oh. uh, cocaine, it doesn't mean that they have an addiction, but it's problematic, you know, in terms of the grander scheme of all this other pharmacology that's in there. So it's um, I think there needs to be so much more education around how to use the tool um, and I know it's not a perfect tool, but it's, you know, it's still something that we, just like when I'm trying to adjust, you know, anti-clotting drugs, you know, at least I have an INR right. to figure it out, right? So that I can manage yeah. risk with the patient. Yeah. So no, I, agree. I agree with that. I think yeah. to the extent that it allows you to sort of open a, just a dialogue with the patient about something that might be a health problem. And it, uh, it actually, in, I've had it in situations in the emergency room where it's actually literally saved lives. Like I'm thinking about a case I was involved in, in a young woman who was 31 weeks pregnant. Uh, who was really struggling. And of course, she, she was using cannabis. She, she was talking about cannabis use and having hyperemesis cannabis. Well, she literally was in severe withdrawal. And so when I did the urine drug test, it, what came up was oxycodone and uh, was able to sit and have a conversation. And by the end of that conversation, she was open to treatment. I mean, it was a horrible social situation for this girl. But literally, and she came back to our clinic about two weeks after that and was so grateful that, that, we, would, that we had the conversation. So I do think it has a place, you know, Dave. It's just, it, oh, yeah. we, we have to use yeah. it not to stigmatize because these are very heavily stigmatized illnesses around chronic pain addiction. Um, so I, the other thing I want to ask, because we know that there are lots of other opiates out there that we're using, opiate analgesics that have dual mechanisms. You know, I'm thinking of methadone jumping up at me now, even though I know that it's uh, it may be a little bit different, but it's, you know, it does have an, uh, you yep. know, an SSRI kind, kind of component. A, a, yeah, NMDA. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are we unfairly damning tramadol and not, I know we can be critical of methadone as well, but I'm just curious about your thoughts about that. Um, 
about about uh, methadone in particular? Well, are we damning? Tra- are we focusing more on tramadol when really, in fact, we should be looking at uh, um, other types of opioids that may actually be causing more harm? Now, I know you, we use methadone as well for opiate use disorder, and there's lots yeah. of good evidence that supports that. But I'm just curious about because tramadol so, seems to be getting a lot of damning, <laughs> not from you, but just in general. Oh, you know, yeah. it's getting uh, it's getting lots of damning from yeah. me because yeah. because I think. Uh, like I've, I've put, I've prescribed tramadol. I've, I've put people, I've continued it in people who are on it, but I don't start it. And I don't think doctors should initiate it because you really are rolling the dice, right? And, and, if, and just to go back and not to harp on this point, but if you, if you view our goal in treating pain as helping more than harming, um, and you know, why would you initiate a drug yeah. that has so much noise in its pharmacology and you, and you really don't know, am I giving this patient mostly venlafaxine or mostly morphine right. or some combination thereof. Uh, but to your other question about, um, you know, so, so tramadol, yes, it's sort of conceptually appealing because it's inherently multimodal. If you happen to have the genetic machinery to turn tramadol into its opioid, using multiple modalities, using tickling different kinds of receptors in an effort to relieve pain, I think is a good strategy. And I think, um, you know, methadone isn't just an opioid. It is an NMDA receptor antagonist too. And so we sometimes see, um, that the, the use of the cautious use of methadone can uh, can help alleviate pain. Mm. And whenever I see methadone uh, used in patients who are already on opioids, um, I sometimes see that happen, uh, rotated from other opioids to methadone, and their pain improves. I often wonder if some of the pain, some of the improvement, is because of the NMDA component yes. and, and a reduction in opioid-induced hyperalgesia. This yeah. is the, mm. the, uh, the under-recognized ability of opioids to worsen pain in some patients. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm all in favor of that. I, I, in hospital, I use ketamine a lot as yeah. for that, for like low doses of ketamine um, uh, as an adjunct to block NMDA receptors. You could even do this with, uh, with dextromethorphan, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in some people, it will, uh, it will, you know, improve not just uh, not just uh, the overall improve the patient's pain in part because it's taking away that element or, or minimizing that element of the pain that is itself from the drugs we've been using. Yeah. So I, I don't know of any other opioid actually that will block the NMDA receptor. I know there, there's other pharm- pharmacology like you're talking about with ketamine and stuff, but as a palliative care physician, oh my God, I could not do my job without methadone. It's just... Oh, I agree. Yeah. yeah no, I think, I think um, yeah, methadone's uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, unique in that way. The concern I've got with methadone is it's long half-life and it's multiple drug interactions and so yeah. and it's cardiac side effects it's it's you know it's it's unique among the opioids in terms of its ability to prolong the QT interval and that's a dose dependent thing the higher the more you're on the greater that risk is yeah. but my big worry with methadone is that people when they, they don't people don't understand how to use it and they'll escalate yeah. the dose too quickly yeah. uh, and people can very you know, very easily in the first days or weeks of therapy find themselves getting too much and having having uh, you know having um, you know, impaired respiratory drive and so on. So in, in the right hands, it's a, it's a very mm. valuable medication. Yeah. I do uh, a lot of inpatient consults and I often get consulted to the ICU. And the typical scenario is an elderly patient who's tubed, has had some kind of a, a you know, an emergency surgery, uh, significant issues around pain. 
and they're they're still intubated, and uh, they're ta- trying to get them off the ventilator. And uh, generally, they they can't seem to do it. They're piling them with all kinds of things that are making things worse. But invariably, most of these patients have opioid-induced uh, pain. Uh, so they have the diffuse allodynia, the whole thing. Yep. And we often will start them on a little bit of methadone. And what we can do in our facility, we don't have the parental methadone. This is one of the challenges when you're in a rural community is that we actually use the internasal atomizers and we'll actually atomize it bucally, uh, very small doses. And invariably, we can get these patients off the ventilator fairly quickly uh, and get their pain managed. But yeah, we we did publish that paper, actually. And if you want to Googleize atomized methadone, it's uh, really ingenious. it's, It's one of the tools that we use in our palliative, it really came from our palliative care population, but, you know, trying to support families in the community with their loved ones, you know, who are dying at home uh, because we didn't have access to CAD pumps or nurses and some of the, like, right. you know, you think about St. Peter's, you would sort of know where that is, uh, Dave. Yep. Um, so it gave uh, families a very effective long-acting opioid that they didn't have to worry about uh, inject rather than injecting right. patients every hour. So, yeah, it's a really interesting tool and it works really great in intubated patients as well. So just to I've, kind of put that I've out learned there. Something. Yeah. In hospital, I, I'm very fond in hospital of uh, of low-dose ketamine as an adjunct, yeah. uh, as an opioid sparing agent. Yep, uh, yep. And it doesn't always work, but when it works, yeah. man, it's impressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's just you find these tools and it's really about trying to improve that quality of, of, of life for that patient, whether it's from pain or whether it's from all the terrible things that we sometimes do around the pharmacology that we use because we're using too much of, of a, a substance like an opioid. You know, there's right. always that fine line, right? Um, I'm just wondering if you if you saw that paper that came out of JAMA in May of 2019 out of the, the UK, uh, the group that um, looked at the introduction of tramadol uh, and followed these patients for a year. So they sort of looked at mortality. Um, I'm just trying to think of the... Um, just got it here. It's, it was a cohort study out of the UK, which looked at about looked at the mortality of patients a year after tramadol was started, as compared to um, you know other types of like the common drugs that we would use NSAIDs and codeine. Uh, and they looked at nearly it's this huge database, obviously that they have in the UK, yep. ninety thousand patients with OA primarily over the age of fifty. And it was kind of it was very very interesting. And now, mind you, there were there were huge issues with the study around confounding. But yep. um, what they did find is that those that pres- were prescribed tramadol a year out had a higher risk of death than those prescribed anti-inflammatories. Uh, now, what was interesting is that the risk was on par with codeine. So it would be it would have been interesting to see what other opioids in terms of a year in this older cohort, you know. But I don't know if you saw that study. It's kind of interesting. I saw it. I, have, I haven't given it thought for a while. I didn't oh. see it when it came out. You're right. Yeah. I mean, these sorts of, you know, there there are factors at play that influence a doctor's decision to prescribe an NSAID versus an opioid. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it might be the case that some of the differences in the two arms are related to the baseline differences in the patients. We have this, I think we have this, this um, it's, I would say that um, doctors are more comfortable using NSAIDs in patients who aren't frail. Yeah. Uh, you know, because we've all been burned by GI and kidney uh, problems with insects. Yeah. So it, one of the reasons why the tramadol or codeine patients might do worse isn't because of the drugs, but just because they're by nature, by their nature, different at baseline. And maybe the doctors are more comfortable because we there is this perception out there among clinicians that opioids are safer than NSAIDs. Mm, There's yeah. not a shred of evidence to support yeah. that. I mean, you, I mean you could, it's not too hard to imagine a scenario, a patient in whom opioids would be safer, right? Somebody with moderate kidney disease and a history of ulcers. I mean, you're not going to want to hit that patient with an NSAID. Uh, uh, and it might be the case that opioids are safer. Yeah. Um, but, but all of the large comparative real-world studies that look at NSAIDs versus opioids, and the only, the only long-term randomized trial that's ever been done comparing opioids to NSAIDs 
finds that patients on NSAIDs generally fare better than those on opioids. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, you'll, you'll also won't, you also have a hard time finding a study that shows that opioids are better pain relievers, believe it or not. Yeah. Even though we have this perception that's been drummed into us by Purdue Pharma yeah. and uh, yeah. tw- tw- 25 years now of, of marketing and, and culture change, that opioids are better analgesics. There, there's yeah. no data to support that. Well, and I think we sort of need to be kind of moving from a focus on pain and more on function. Like I said, the only group that I tend to focus more on pain are usually that end of life. And I will tell you right. that most of these, most patients, even when you're when you're managing pain at the end of life, the the last thing they want to do is lose function uh, and be more sedated. Like they're like, no, I'd rather find other ways. You know, I can use this as an adjunct or whatever. But you have to have that conversation. And but usually by the time the disease has progressed, obviously uh, you are going to compromise function and, and uh, may compromise sedation. But usually that's right. a dialogue you have with the patient, right? So right. it's just so important. Yeah. So I'm, I'm aware of time, David, and I know that you're a busy guy. So okay. I, I didn't know if you had any final words or any advice. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, um, just I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. But any any final words? On the issue of tramadol, I think, again, I think the, the one can easily make a case recognizing that it can help some people. It can do what we want. It can harm more than help. Uh, it you, you can easily make the case that, that starting it doesn't make a lot of sense from a, from a, from a purely pharmacological perspective. If you want to use an opioid, again, use, use a full ag, use something like morphine, use a bit of hydromorph uh, or so on. Um, but um, I think we've, and I've spent a lot of time in the course of our discussion, I don't mean to harp on dependence, uh, uh, as, uh, as much as I, I, I perhaps did, but I think that doctors and patients alike, uh, it, it's impossible to overstate just how, uh, pernicious a harm dependence is. And again, it happens within a couple of days because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's exactly the sort of side effect that makes that gradually over time makes a drug seem really important and essential important and effective and essential when in fact it's important and effective and essential because you have been on the drug. And I think this is why I think that, you know, we're not going to solve the opioid crisis by curtailing prescriptions. I mean, we need a massive societal investment in addiction and we need to look at, we need to, you know, not arrest people for using drugs because that's just crazy. I mean, you you don't make drug, you don't make addiction better by putting people in jail. Like we need to, we need to view it as a health problem and not a criminal problem. Uh, But we also need to recognize that um, that opioids harm people uh, in ways that we are only just now coming to understand, courtesy of several decades of liberal use, in ways aside from addiction. And there's no delicate way to put it, but, you know, we went into medical school, most of us, because we want to help people. Yeah. And, and helping people very often amounts to relieving suffering, and pain is the commonest form of suffering we see. So, but the idea... That that relieving suffering and, and helping more than harming is, is is as quick as writing a prescription. I think is is a is the the, the sort of thing that doctors have to do less of that, uh, as as hard as it is to say. Uh, and, and sometimes you know it's it's easy to write a prescription. It takes thirty seconds. It takes ten minutes sometimes to not write one. 
Yeah. Uh, but sometimes that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, when we think about, and I'll come back to the analogy I like to use is around, we'll give an example of warfarin or doac. We would never prescribe those medications without having a conversation around the benefit and risk or what to expect or what to watch out for. Mm. It is it's mind-boggling how quick we are to write an opiate analgesic, but instead focusing on this is a bad drug for you. There may be situations where it can be actually beneficial, but you have to help the patient manage the risk. You know, you cannot expect that patient just to go and, uh, you know, not to understand the harms and the benefits. So, so, so not, not to draw it out too much, and I'm sorry, for, but I think no. you've hit on a really important point. And if you ask a doctor, what are the harms of NSAIDs? He yeah. or she will say GI harms and yep. kidney harms and uh, hypertension and, you know, but if you ask a doctor about opioids, yeah. uh, we, I, I bet you half of the harms we don't even entertain. We don't yeah. entertain dependence as a harm yeah. or hyperalgesia or the endocrine effects or the effects on sleep and sleep quality or the possibility that in some patients depression might be in part not just from the pain, but from the drugs we use to treat it. It's it's really hard, I got to say, yeah. to have an informed, have a discussion, have an informed consent discussion about the benefits and harms of therapy when the harms, at least in some instances, are really hard to detect and sometimes can even come to look like benefits, if you get what I'm saying. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and one of the biggest harms that we really didn't dig into, and I always tell uh, patients that, you know, opiate use disorders or opiate addiction are life-threatening complication of an opioid that's being used on a regular basis in a vulnerable brain. So it's not a moral or ethical failing, it's a complication. So if we're not managing that risk, having that conversation, uh, and to me, death and opiate use disorder are probably the biggest, biggest complications, not to mention all the other things which are important because dependency is something that you can use to help prevent those really life-threatening complications. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and uh, take care. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.